Hi again, everyone. And thank you so much for tuning back in for another episode of Dua Lipa at your service. It's been such a delight getting to interview some of my favorite people from around the world. And it's been an equally wonderful gift to read and hear your reactions to the series. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for coming back week after week to hear me sit down with my incredible guests. And speaking of incredible guests, when I first read Hanya Yanagihara's 2015 novel, A Little Life, I was absolutely blown away. And I felt like I'd been instantly transported to this rich, textured world of her protagonists, which were four friends growing up together and separately as they each navigate some of life's smallest and biggest obstacles, really. It's a challenging, it's quite an emotional read. It balances beauty and joy with some real moments of devastation and loss. And I, like many, walked away from a little life feeling profoundly changed and forever grateful to have been granted access to even the smallest corner of Hanya's mind. But A Little Life wasn't Hanya's first book, and it wasn't her last either. She began her career as a publicist and magazine editor, adding novelist to a resume with 2013's The People in the Trees. And then she continued her streak of unmissable works with this year's best-selling To Paradise. Throughout her work, Hanya writes beautifully about the dynamics between family members, friends, partners, and so much more. And she never repeats herself, but she's constantly interweaving and enriching her themes from book to book. The editor-in-chief of Team Magazine since 2017, Hanya is also an avid traveler, a lover of life's creature comforts. And as you'll hear in today's episode, one of the warmest and most brilliant conversationalists. Throughout our 90 minutes together, Hanya and I talked about her writing, her travels, the role criticism plays or doesn't in our creative pursuits, and so much more. I mean it when I say I cannot wait for you all to hear this week's episode of Dua Lipa at Your Service with special guest Hanya Yanagihara. Hi. Hi! Thank you so much for doing this with me. No, I'm so honored to. Are you kidding? I have to say, first of all, Dua, your support and your passion and your advocacy I mean, first of all, did you ever think you'd be a book influencer along with your other things? Oh my goodness. You know, I'm very passionate about books. I've always loved reading. It's always just been something that, and, and I'm not saying this just because I'm, I'm talking to you right now, but I think I became even more deeply passionate about books after I read A Little Life. I think well, that book completely so changed my life. Thank you. Thank you. Your, your writing just kind of opened me up to a whole new world. And so well, I have a lot you. to thank you for. Thank you. And I owe you the thanks right back. I mean, number one, I'm a huge fan of yours. And number two, you really, I don't know if you know that when you pick books like this and and you advocate for them, it makes a huge difference for the writer. And, you know, not a lot of people read books, actually. I mean, I think that the numbers would shock you. The typical standard in the United States is that you'll sell about 4,000 copies of a novel and anything else you have to really, really work for. So to have you really embrace a little life and the characters, I mean, it's such a huge difference to me. And I think to writers everywhere, and I'm so grateful to you. It really was just a huge unexpected gift. I, I feel so lucky to get to talk to you as well. I find you so interesting and amazing and cool. And I love your perspective on life as well. So I'm excited to kind of get 
into all of that right now. And you've talked about the importance of curiosity Mm. and how that is kind of like the meaning of being alive. And I just want to start by simply asking you, what were you curious about when you Mm. wrote A Little Life and To Paradise? A few years ago, I had this job and one of the founders of the magazine, I was at Condé Nast Traveler, was this older man named Clive Irving, who's British. And he was probably in his late 70s, and he was so curious about everything. You know, he wanted to know what the young people were talking about. He wanted to know what you were reading. He wanted to know where you wanted to go. He wanted to know what you wanted to eat. And I just remember thinking, like, that is the way to stay young, especially for those of us who are artists or creative people. I think it's always a really humbling and useful experience to become involved in the art of another genre. So, you know, you as a singer-songwriter and performer are a reader, and you're a traveler and you love art, clearly. And I love visual art, too, and I love to travel, and I love music. And that is something that keeps you, I think, in this constant state of awe. And when I started writing A Little Life, I was curious about a couple of things. The first is male friendship. And that I always say that that's fundamentally what the book is about, and it is. You know, I went to an all-girls school, and I was in publishing. It's funny, so did I. Did you really? Yeah, in London, secondary well, school. So you understand that I went to an all-girls university. So when I should have been around kind of young men and figuring them out, I wasn't. And so by the time I graduated, I think I had a lot of questions about what it was to be a 22-year-old man. And I found myself observing them a lot. And I realized that it wasn't that men didn't feel vulnerability or shame or sorrow. It was that we live in a culture that doesn't allow them to express those things. Mm. And I suppose I started thinking, what happens to you know half of our population roughly when they are not allowed to express the fundamental human qualities that make us vulnerable? Where does that shame and anger and sorrow go? And of course, it either explodes outwards or it turns inwards. Yeah. And how does one express love when, as a gender, they're not really encouraged to talk about male love or, or only in a joking way? And then for To Paradise, that was very much a different kind of book because— But they're both books about society at large and how society affects the individual. And for To Paradise, I started thinking about not only this idea of America as a paradise. I mean, you know, you come from an immigrant family. I come Mm -hmm. from an immigrant family. But this idea that makes people leave one country and go to another. And also this idea of, you know, how much do individuals give up to protect themselves, to be safe? And that's, you know, both in a parent and child relationship, but it's also as a citizen and what we are willing to surrender of our rights in order to be safe. And sometimes that surrender is, I think, the correct thing to do. But Mm -hmm. is there a line in which we start moving towards a much more perilous form of society? I found that really interesting when when I was reading To Paradise is we have such an idea of America it being this American dream and kind of the pressures that also that brings. And so I thought that you painted it quite perfectly, you know, the trials and tribulations of what that actually might be like, especially when looking into the future in book three, what that could possibly end up being. Very anxiety inducing, I must say. (laughs) Um, But I think, you know, as an author, you bring that out so brilliantly. And I think art in whatever way, obviously should be subjective and everybody can have something to say about it, but you will always 
I feel like tug on people's heartstrings no matter what. You're you're very good at that. Well, thank you. I'd love to know what your idea of paradise is. You or know, what does paradise look like? Because it's not America. So what is it? <laughs> I mean, I didn't grow up in a religious tradition that believed in paradise. So that concept comes more from being an American than from any sort of, you know, religious or cultural heritage. It's not a physical place the way it is in the book. It is a state that I think I'm always trying to achieve for myself. And I wouldn't say it's happiness necessarily. I would say it's a kind of evenness. I wish I could move more lightly through life, by which I mean I wish things affected me less. And that's, I think, the closest I can define paradise, to be someone who is less inward and less self-involved. What about you? My goodness. Um, I like the way that you said, you know, the moving easier through life. I think the idea of contentment and Mm, just there being this evenness to life. And, but, There's also this idea to me that, I don't know, when you feel like you've had the best night out with your friends or whatever, and you're like, that feeling, there's if I could like put it into a, I don't know, if I could wrap it up and keep it forever, there's this one feeling of excitement, of joy, or like the butterfly feeling before I get on stage. It's just a very particular feeling of like ecstasy. You know, when you're uncontrollably laughing and you kind of wish that it lasts forever? Yes, That feeling, to me, feels like paradise. Yeah, I I agree. Personally, it's this overjoy. Yeah, I agree. And and also just a complete lack of of consciousness. So, you know, Mm. so, I mean, I always think of this moment when my friend and I are just, we're by the sea and just giggling until, you know, until it hurts. Yeah. And not caring about what we look like or even Mm -hmm. what we were laughing about anymore. And that is a state of transcendence that... I think that is the perfect way to put it. That is the lack of consciousness. That is my paradise. Yeah, that's a great... Yeah. Yeah. And I'd I'd like to live in that world... But the nice thing is, it is accessible to all of us. It Mm -hmm. doesn't happen often, but it is something we all have access to. Speaking of coming from an immigrant family, to paradise is split in three parts, like I Mm. said, and and the second of which follows the protagonist, which grew up like you did for several years in Hawaii. Yeah. I just want to know, like, how did your upbringing shape you Mm. both professionally and personally? Mm. Well, I'm a fourth-generation American, which is a quite long time for Asians, East Asians in America. Most people came over much later, but my family came over in the late 1800s to what was then the Kingdom of Hawaii. I'm not of Hawaiian blood, but I'm a fourth-generation Hawaii resident. And one of the things that you experience when you're living in Hawaii is you are actually growing up in a place that was the site of America's imperialist experiment. I mean, the book begins in 1893, which was the year that the last monarch of Hawaii was deposed, and the country later became annexed by America. And so you're always growing in this sense of living in a colonial experiment in a way, because it was America's colonial experiment. And you're also growing up in a place where even though Asians have been in this state for a very long time, you are an interloper, that there is a native tradition and a native culture that already existed there. 
And it really did make me rethink my relationship to that land. And it did start to make me think a lot about the resources and the culture and the finances and how, you know, my own family, although they came to work in the fields, was a part of that process. I'm always so interested in finding out about people who had come from immigrant families who had lived in their land. I felt the same way about when I went to Kosovo, for example. And it gave me a completely different experience of who I was and where my roots are from and how I connect to my people and the history and all of that. And I think it's a big part of me, like who I am and why I feel like I need to stand up for immigrants as well in so many different ways. I'm always very curious to know what everyone's experience is with that. Were you ashamed of being an immigrant as a child? And did that change as you got older? It's interesting um, you say that because when I was younger, I just wanted to be so normal that I mm. wasn't proud of my name, you know, yeah. Dua. Yeah. And I would go to school and I'd be like, fuck, like I just wish <laughs> I had a normal name or something that people could pronounce or that just wasn't out of the ordinary where I would then have to, you know, tell people where I was from. And then when yeah. I moved to Kosovo... It was very much of like, okay, I'm moving to a place where I'll be more accepted and people will know, you know, will at least be able to pronounce my name. But then I went to Kosovo and then I was the English girl. Right, that's right. There, so it was, you know, trying to fit in. But I think I learned so much about history and who I was in a very different way that made me also feel quite patriotic about my roots and then made me take a whole new kind of pride in my name and who I was. And so when I moved... Back to London when I was 15, then I really kind of, I took it in my stride and I was like, yes, this is who I am. And I think sometimes you need to go back to to your homeland to really kind of get in touch with that. Did you ever try to change your name? No, I didn't. I did. I didn't. So good I for had you. like fantasies of like, oh, maybe I could be called like Amber or something. Right. I was like, Amber <laughs> of everything. You tried to change your name. Yeah, I went by my middle name for a while, Catherine. And oh, I, really? But it never worked. So when we moved, we moved <laughs> a lot, and I kept trying to get people to call me Kate, and it just did not work. And I'm it not just a didn't Kate. Stick. It, yeah, it didn't <laughs> stick, and it did not stick. But I think you're absolutely right. I think you kind of realize that you're of both countries and neither, and you learn to make your peace with that. We'll be right back after this short break. You've spoken so eloquently about how coming to a career as an acclaimed novelist comparatively later in life has given you such confidence. Why do you think that you're able to write the way you do now versus 20 years ago? When I look back on when I was 20 and 21 and trying to write, I was trying to write an older male character And I was consumed with trying to, you know, quote-unquote, sound old. It's almost a kind of cosplay when you're young and you're trying to write. You're imitating a lot of other people, and you are trying to really figure out what you have to say and how you want to say it. And some people are able to do that from a very young age. You know, some novelists really know very early on who they are and what they sound like. And this is the same for all kinds of artists. Mm -hmm. But some of us need time to overcome our inhibitions and to overcome what we've learned. I think, you know, a lot of writers are told they have to write every day. 
And that's not true. And I think that as you establish yourself in other realms of life, you know, as a friend or as a colleague or as, you know, a lover or whatever, as a homeowner or whatever those are, you do start to realize why you're doing making the art to begin with. And you're not making it to sound like someone else. Mm -hmm. You're trying to make it because you feel it's something only you can say. And it was like that for me. I relate to that so much, except I feel like I had to do so much of my learning in public. Yeah. I went into, you know, writing my first album and I was, you know, I was writing so much and I was just trying to figure out, you know, who I was as an artist, yeah. what is the sound that I want to make and who I am as a writer as well. And kind of doing that and releasing music at the same time while trying to promote everything, be at many places at once. When I wrote my second album, I was like, oh, things are starting to fall into place. Like, I know myself better. It was just, there are parts of it that I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe I had to go through so much of that in public. Yeah, Um, I can see that. And that is the real challenge of being a performer because you're right. I mean, I think you said it perfectly. All the mistakes are made in public and you are really having to grow into your own as a person and as an artist with everyone watching. When you're a writer you know, you can be as old as you want when you get published the first time or as old as you need to be. And the performative aspect is relatively small. And so the mistakes you make, you make on paper and only your editor or your reader sees them. You know, if I had to give advice to writers, I always say, you know, it's not a race and it's something that is yours and it's private until you're ready for it not to be. And that's not the same for most other kinds of artists, I think. So we're very lucky that way. Mm. I also read somewhere which um, goes back on what you're saying right now, which is something I say all the time, is, you know, when you write a book and you finally put it out, that no longer belongs to you. Yeah. And I feel that way. Yeah, do you? Deeply about my music, because up until the point that it's out, I am listening to it, I am, you know, rewriting parts, I am working on the mixes, everything. But the second it's out, I don't think I ever listen to it unless I'm like preparing for a tour or I hear it on the radio or That's I just, fascinating. That is the end of that for me because I feel like I've cradled it for so long. And then once it's out, it belongs to the people and they can make of it what they want, you know. Can I ask, is there a song that was very dear to you when you were writing it and recording it and rehearsing it? And then once it came out, you found yourself detaching from it. I mean, was there one that was particularly hard to let go of? I was quite connected to Love Again. That one was, mm, yeah. I kept going back in and rewriting and moving bits around until it was like perfect. And it was very hard for me to kind of let go of that song. And then when it was out, I started seeing it as, I don't know, just this entity almost of yeah. a completely different world. You know, something that I wasn't as focused on anymore as emotionally yeah. as I was when I was writing and recording it even. Or, you know, everything that came with it was very dear to me. But that's interesting you don't listen to. I mean, I mean, I guess I don't read. Once the book has been published, I don't revisit it. But I mean, I agree with you. It's not mine anymore. It belongs to the readers. But at the same time, you know, I still think about the characters almost Mm. daily. It's both the world that now that that I can't escape even if I wanted to, but is also a comfort. You know, you spend so long years conjuring these characters and they do Mm -hmm. become people in your life. It's like having an imaginary friend is really the closest, I think, comparison. And no one else can see them, and but they're there, and you're aware of what they're doing at any time. Like, you know, I was in the car coming up here, and I thought, you know, you know so much about them that I can imagine, say, Jude and Willem 
living a parallel life in a parallel universe to this one, and I know what they'd be doing at this moment. So you're living with ghosts, but it's not an unpleasant sensation. It doesn't feel oppressive. It's interesting. I've got a very interesting question actually next, which, and I don't want this to come across as like unfeminist of me because I actually, I think whatever you decide and whatever any woman decides to do with their body is entirely their Mm. decision. But I was just being curious. Yeah. And you said that you never wanted to have a family Mm. and that you don't believe in marriage Mm. and nor do the characters in your book. Where do those feelings come from? You know, I don't know. My parents have a very long and happy and romantic and unfortunately, because I've seen it firsthand, erotic marriage. Um, and they're, they've been <laughs> married for, for like 53 years. Oh my um, gosh. And uh, <laughs> I wish I didn't know some of that, but I do. And, you know, when you look at marriage and, you know, I love marriage novels. You know, I love Jane Austen and Dickens, which are also marriage novels. A woman's opportunities for romance and in marriage were completely based on how much money either she had or could Mm -hmm. marry into. Mm -hmm. And so marriage for most of, you know, history was not about love. It was about a union of resources, you know, either to stop a war or to unite clans or to enrich people. So I've always thought marriage has somewhat been weighted against women. And I never wanted to be in a relationship that was adjudicated by the state, fundamentally. And it's not because I'm a libertarian or am not interested in state's intervention in general. But I feel that there is something, and it's why I'm so interested in friendship as a relationship, because it's Mm -hmm. the one relationship that we choose, um, no matter our circumstances and no matter how difficult our society is. It's the one relationship that no one can put laws on around. It's only two people choosing to stay together because they want to and because they love each other in some way. And I find that just as meaningful a relationship as marriage. I never imagined having kids. I never imagined being married. I had this idea of being a woman who lived in a loft with a lot of stuff and had a lot of friends. And, you know, and that is what I have. And it's, which is not to say that it doesn't get lonely occasionally, because I think it does. But I was very lucky that I always knew that I didn't want to have children. Because I think if I had known and I was single, it wouldn't make it impossible, but it would make life much more difficult. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you think about that a lot? You're much younger than I am, but, you know, I think people know sort of at an early age whether they want children or whether they want marriage. Well, see, for me, I've also never really thought about marriage and it's never been, you know, how some girls kind of go, oh, you know, I've like dreamt about what my dress is going to be like on my wedding day. Never. Yeah. Never something that I've envisioned. And, you know, the kind of parents having like a happy marriage and this great thing. My parents are also together and in love and whatever. And I'm like, my God, maybe they've just set like these unrealistic expectations that we just kind of look and go, oh, maybe. That's you know, what I thought too. Yeah. No, we can't have that. Or I also think maybe being a career woman in some aspects is something that, you know, we kind of see we're like, okay, we have all these incredible opportunities. And I, I think this for myself that I'm like, okay, yeah. every day I wake up, I do what I love. I'm really passionate. I work my ass off. You know, I, in some ways, am quite selfish because I focus on my work yeah. so much that maybe having this like finding the one maybe isn't the thing for me. 
Yeah. But who knows? You know, I love love also. I think it's a beautiful experience. It's something amazing. But I, I do think about it a lot. And then, you know, the, the kind of idea of, like I said, finding the one, I think, I think um, friendship is a much purer relationship. I think that a lot. And I think about it with my, my girlfriends, for example. I'm like, you know, it's amazing. I have these amazing relationships with my friends and I can yeah. sit and talk to them about anything and feel very at peace and they understand me wholeheartedly. And I'm sometimes like, you know, maybe maybe I, I, I can't find that one person that can give me everything. And that's kind of how it was back in the day. You know, people yes. had communities. Yes, completely. And it's a lot of pressure. And one of the points that, you know, A Little Life makes is that this idea that your partner should be everything, you know, your mm. romantic partner, your sexual partner, your best friend, your soulmate, your intellectual helpmate is not realistic and it's a relatively modern invention. I mean, right. for most of us, those duties are divided among a number of people. And so I think, especially as women, we put, not just women, but perhaps traditionally as women, we put a lot of pressure upon ourselves to find that one. And it really puts a lot of strain on any relationship, I think. Mm -hmm. I mean, the other thing I would say is that, oh, two things. The first is that, you know, I have a lot of older friends. And one of the things you realize when you're hanging out with older friends in creative fields is there's actually a lot of different ways to have a life with someone. I have this friend who's older, she's an editor, and she lives in one apartment and then her wife lives down the hall in another apartment, which always seemed to me sort of the <laughs> ideal way to do things. And so there's all sorts of people living different kinds of relationships yeah. that we know about. The second thing is that I think when you're an artist, you need time and you need private space and you need alone time. I mean, I get most of my writing done just walking around the city Mm -hmm. But I need a lot of time, you know, hours to just be by myself and daydream. Yeah. Um, you've recently said, I have the right to write about whatever I want. And the only thing a reader can judge is whether I've done so well or not. Mm. And I'd love to know how you stay faithful and honest to experiences that aren't your own. You know... <sighs> It's a moment in which we are hearing from a lot of different people, and it's a long overdue moment. And, you know, I edit a magazine, and in that magazine, one of the great things about being a curator or an editor of any kind, I mean, much like you're doing with this, is that you do get to give a platform and a space for people who would not necessarily have been heard even a decade ago. But as a creator, you have to be able to inhabit other people's voices and other people's experiences. We published, you know, I'm the editor-in-chief of a magazine called T, which is the New York Times' style and design magazine. And we published an interview in December with the American playwright Tony Kushner, who wrote Angels in America, and most recently wrote the screenplay for West Side Story. Mm -hmm. And he said something that really resonated with me, which was he said, I refuse to accept this notion that I am causing harm to another community by writing in their voice. Because one of the things that art can offer us in this day and age is empathic flights into somebody else's life, which I thought was such a beautiful way of putting it, that as artists, one of the things we are obligated to do is to try to imagine somebody else's life and to try to imagine somebody else's experience. Because in the construction of the particular, whether that life is 
a gay life or a trans life or a woman's life or you know an Asian life is the universal. And that's why we not only should not be afraid to do it, we should be trying to do it. And we should be trying to do it in a way that, you know, where we're creating complete lives. You know, the author Colson Whitehead talks about writing difference and he just says, don't fuck it up. And I think that really is the best and only and simplest advice that if you are writing a character or creating a character, acting as a character who is unlike you, that character cannot just be a collection of traits or tropes or cliches. That You have to know everything else about that character as well. You have to know kind of what their favorite food is. You have to know where they want to travel to. You have to know what their greatest dreams are. If you can create a character that rich, then you should never be afraid of writing across difference. But I also wonder, you know, for me, for example, and I guess this is the only thing that I can relate to, is like going back to <laughs> my own personal experience and going, okay, when I write my music, obviously I write about what I know. I write very mm. personal experiences. For you you know, by not writing experiences that are personal to you. Is that is that something to do with like wanting to keep your own personal privacy or to hold something for yourself in a way? Is that something that you do um, consciously? Yeah, not consciously. But I do think that a lot of what art is, is hiding in plain sight. And this is particularly true for writers. There is always a plausible deniability or hiding in fiction, and yet you're completely present at the same time. I think sometimes when you write in the skin of another, you allow yourself to get a different perspective on yourself, but also on your particular identities, whether it is as a woman or as, you know, a person of color. You sometimes don't see it until you are projecting into somebody else's life or somebody else's skin or somebody else's clothing. I'm always struck by how many, what we ask for from women artists in particular. If you look at contemporary art and literature and modern art and literature, a lot of it asks women to expose themselves either literally or figuratively. So, and I think there's something, I think radically withholding about not doing that. If you are a female creator, about not using your biography or the literal facts of it or your physical body in order to make art. That's really interesting. And that's probably, and I'm, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but maybe probably why you don't have very many female protagonists in your, in your book. In To Paradise, you only have one, which is mm. Charlie. Yeah. You know, I mostly enjoy being a woman, but it was never something that has been a big creative touchstone for me. Like, I don't know why there aren't more female characters. I don't know why, you know, there are no mother characters in the books, mm. in any of them. And I suppose it's really kind of a question for a psychologist to figure out rather than, <laughs> than me, you know. Um, but I write about men in a sense because I feel I don't know them as well. And so it's a group of people I'm interested in. And it's a group of people who have been given a very limited emotional toolbox. So it's always interesting to write characters who have limitations put upon them by the culture at large, I think. Oh my God, sometimes you just say things so perfectly that I'm always just like left afterwards going, well, that was just brilliant. And um, so, and also being a fan, I'm um, just taking it all in. So no, I'm just like, very sweet. Thank you. Oh my God, you're just saying everything perfectly. 
We're going to take another quick break. And while we're away, why don't you take a moment to go to service95.com and subscribe to our Service 95 newsletter. A new issue of Service 95 will hit your inbox every Thursday. And I don't think you'll want to miss a second of what we've been working on. So subscribe now at service95.com. We'll be right back after this short break. I would love to know how you also deal with criticism. You know, you kind of pour your whole heart into writing these books. I know that also when you create like the basis or the foundation of what your book is, you decide not to change it. I'm just wondering, once the book is out, how do you feel about the criticism and how do you also deal with that? Well, I want to ask you about this, but I'll say I don't read reviews. I don't read anything about myself. I've never done it. And my first book was published in 2013, so almost a decade ago. And I have never once read a review, read a profile, read an article, nothing. And when I was starting out, an older established writer said to me, the good reviews are never good enough and the bad ones stay with you forever. And I just don't engage. I can't change the work. It's already out there. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to change the way I write. It's not possible. And so I don't really understand what the point is. It just feels like emotional self-abuse. You know, one of my best friends is a fashion designer, and he reads everything. And I always say to him, why are you doing that? No one has ever said, well, I really love this dress, but now that I read so-and-so, I'm not going, I don't love it anymore, you know? how How do you deal with it? It's been a process, you know? In the beginning, I read everything, the good and the bad. And like you said, the good stays with you you know, for a little while and you get, you're you're like happy about it. And I'm like, okay, this is great. But then the bad ones really do linger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there also came a point where I was doing too much. And I think I also deep down knew that I wasn't reaching my fullest potential because I wasn't giving myself enough time to be the best I could be. Like I wasn't giving myself enough rehearsal time. I'll never forget one time I was about to perform on live TV. And I had 30 minutes just before to oh, learn a whole dance God. routine. No, that's... To get up mm. on stage and perform. And it was more, it was self-inflicted because I'm also the person where I'm like, okay, I have this amazing opportunity, so I want to try and do everything at the yeah. same time. But then I never give time for myself, which is something that I've had to learn over time. So I think when I started getting criticism, when those things were happening, it's almost like I couldn't blame them because I was like, I know for a fact that I wasn't good enough right. in some way. Right. So it kind of just like added onto it. Obviously, it would have been so nice if they were like, oh, that was amazing. And I'm right. like, oh, I did that in 30 <laughs> minutes. But that's, that wasn't the case for me. And right. so I had, to, I had to sit down and with this new album and I was like, okay, I'm going to spend rehearsal time. I'm going to like do my performances the way I want to do them. I want to give myself time. When I started doing that and... I felt better about the performance itself. Right. I also stopped reading. Oh, that's interesting. The reviews. That's inter- so and do you not read anything now? Well, I definitely don't go looking for them. I think I kind of went looking for them right. in the first right, right. album. I think probably because of the fact that I knew, or I, I don't know, again, it's that self-inflicted pain. Maybe I just needed this like criticism to kind of get better. I don't know what it was. Again, call a psychologist. Yeah. Let's yeah. figure this out. <laughs> um, and how much do you, do you act on instinct? How much, how much do you just really trust your gut at the end of the day? I think when it comes to trusting my gut, it's, it's sonically. It's mm-hmm. like when I sit down That's in a room yeah. and I'm, 
I'm like, okay, this is what the sound is. This is where I'm going for my next album or whatever. I really trust it. And I think that happened with um, with Future Nostalgia was when I presented my first couple songs to my team. It was quite an interesting reaction of like, okay, right. let's go. Interesting. <laughs> right. Is this really what you want to do? I'm like, yeah, this is yeah. kind of, this is where I see it. This is what I I want to do. I don't feel like I'm really hearing it on the radio and I just, I want to do my own thing. And it's something yeah. that it, that has inspired me. And they were the ones that were like, all right, well, just keep at it and let's see what, let's see what happens. And I think sonically, I'd like to think I make good decisions and that I also like to like push boundaries and do things that scare me. And yes. yeah. I think I had awful anxiety in November in 2019, just before I was about to release Don't Start Now, because I was like, fuck, what am I even doing? Like, does anybody even want to hear this song? Really? And yeah, I always, I you know, and then the whole album, I was like, my God, I hope this is going to be like interesting. You know, I did something that I was very proud of and I loved, but I was also in my own little bubble for so long. Mm. Of like, okay, I was living in my own world and now I'm like putting my world out there. Yes, yeah. Which is also a, a very vulnerable um, but I think situation to put yourself you know, in. I, I was telling, you know, my friend who's the fashion designer that if right before you release something, and I feel this way too, you don't feel incredibly conflicted and scared, then you haven't pushed hard enough. You yeah. haven't tried something hard enough. You've done something easier. You've repeated yourself. Mm. And I think that, you know, when I'm writing... At the beginning of the day, I could think, wow, this is the best thing I've ever written. At the end of the day, I'll tell, you know, one of my friends, this is horrible. And <laughs> that sort of feeling persists all the way through. I feel the same way, but you can't help those, like, feelings of anxiety yeah. being like, I thought this was good. And then just moments before it's coming out, I'm like, I don't know if this is good enough. Right, I right, don't know right. if this is good. And But I think it's really important, I think, for everyone to just kind of take a leap. And I think I'm doing that again with like my third album where I'm like, I don't fucking know what I'm doing. <laughs> but I think this is the right thing to do. Yeah. I mean, do you feel that way when you're writing? Yes, completely. Or like when you when you wrote A Little Life, for example, or even To Paradise, and when you wrote that final page, you're like, perfect. Was that, is that how you, <laughs> well, was hardly. that how you felt? I wish, but <laughs> I really, uh, the worlds were so absorbing that I really... When I was inside them, I felt that they were correct, but I had a lot of doubt. You know, I, I mm -hmm. think sometimes I forget the amount of doubt, the intensity of that doubt, and how much I second-guess myself. And it really is kind of, someone once said to me, it's like, to be an artist is on one hand, to like, on this pole you have extreme arrogance, and on this pole you have incredible self-hatred, and like, if you do the Venn diagram, that little sliver yeah, where they overlap is where, is where you live throughout the entire creative process. Yeah. But I really did just try to be intuitive about it and to follow my instincts. And at the end of the day, I'm writing what I want to read. And you can't think about anything else. I mean, you can't try to second guess what fans are going to want or critics are going to want. or You can't think about that. I mean, mm -hmm. I once heard this speech by this well-known novelist who said, you have to write like you're dead. And what he meant by that was, you have to write as if you're not going to be there for the reception, that you're only going to write and create the best work of art that you can. And what comes after is not your concern, which is a very clarifying way to think about creation, that you are not writing it 
in a sense, for anyone else. You are doing it only for yourself. And that kind yeah. of selfishness, I think, does result in the in the most interesting work. Not always the best work, but the most daring work. Yeah. You've mentioned your your uh, one of your closest friends who's a designer. And so I'd also love to ask you about your uniform. Yeah. <laughs> Which I also think is really cool because I think it's really iconic when someone has a thing. You know, you have yeah. your thing, your Dexter's lab yeah. outfit, you know, <laughs> and I think that's really cool. Yeah. You know, you, you, you're you rarely ever seen in anything that isn't black. Yeah, but that's Is mostly that? laziness. And, really? Um, yeah. I mean, listen, we both go to Fashion Week and the thing I love about Fashion Week, so all the British editors wear the exact same thing. They wear trainers, jeans, and sweaters. And there is something kind of great about that, about being really anti-fashion at Fashion Week. I've really loved this period because I wear a lot of jewelry. I'm not wearing that much today. And then I just wear something really, really simple. And I think that's a really chic look. I wear my hair the same way every day. But again, a lot of this is out of laziness. And I really, the decoration is just jewelry. Mm. And it's not that I don't think about it a lot. I think about it a lot. But I like to have something that can really go anywhere. And I love to watch other people dress up. I mean, are you in your private life a big fashion girl or not really? Oh, my God. I am obsessed with it. Are you? If I could just dress up to go to the shop, I would. Yeah. <laughs> See, you know, I'm I like, was never one of those people. But I was the kind of girl that would be like, you know, go to my friend's house and be like, okay, where is the dress up box? And just... right. You know, right. just pick out things and put a hat that doesn't go with this dress, blah, 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 this. Whereas now I get to do it with things that are a little bit nicer than that. Yeah, yeah. So I'm quite, um, I, I'm quite, I mean, I'm quite pleased. I'm like, whoa, I've got all these colors. Like, let's fucking go nuts. I think it's also because I did grow up in Hawaii, which is a very, very casual place. No one wears shoes. And you're really made to kind of be in nature all the time. Mm. So I really resent wearing shoes and I never learned how to walk in heels. But a lot of people there do wear jewelry to swim. And so I, I do wear it to swim. And it's something that that's considered sort of an acceptable decoration, but not sequins. I've, not a sequins, but yeah. jewelry to swim. Yeah, I jewelry. love that. I've, I've yeah. always fantasized about living by the sea or by the ocean yeah. or in nature. I think just yeah. being in the city. And then when I would go on like a summer break, I'd be like, oh, I think I could live here forever. Yeah. Well, where do you like to go to when you really need to recharge? Last summer, I went to Albania. Mm. And I went to the south of Albania, which I hadn't been since I was 12 years old. Mm. Oh, wow. But there are about 10 people on the beach. It was completely quiet. It's the Ionian Sea, so the same yeah. as what you would get in Corfu, which is just beautiful. And it was just so peaceful, and I felt the most relaxed and recharged I'd felt in a very long time. Mm. So... Hanya, for the list that I would love to ask you about, especially as an editor of a magazine, it's always really interesting and really cool to spotlight writers that you love. And so I would love to know your five favorite writers of any genre. Okay. And I only kept to living writers. Okay. I mean, my the person I always talk about as being not directly an influence, but I admire his work so much, is Kazuo Ishiguro, who wrote The Remains of the Day, The Berry Giant, and most recently, Clara and the Sun. And the thing I find so interesting about him 
is he has two themes, loneliness and time. And with each book, he really does something different. So The Remains of the Day was basically a a send-up of an English upstairs-downstairs drama. The Buried Giant, which was a more more recent book, is a retelling of um, Sir Arthur's tale. Clara and the Sun is set in a slightly sci-fi world in the near future with artificial friends. And he writes with, the sentences are very simple. It's very, very easy to read. But he writes with such tenderness and such depth of emotion, and they're deeply moving books. The second person I would say is John Banville, who's an Irish writer, and he just writes beautiful prose. But the book I'd recommend, which is kind of an outlier among his books, is The Untouchable. And this is about Kim Philby and the British traitors of the Second World War. And it's very funny in parts as well. I love the American playwright who I've already mentioned, Tony Kushner, who wrote Angels in America. That play was definitely an influence for To Paradise. And he's able to write very large epic plays, but at the same time with very small human concerns. I love Hilary Mantel, you know, who wrote Wolf Hall. And I just think she's completely remade what the historical novel is. And then the fifth person I would say is a Pakistani-American writer named Mohsin Hamid, he wrote a book called Moth Smoke. He wrote The Reluctant Fundamentalist. He wrote How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia. Some of the books are allegorical slightly, and some of them are a little parable-like, but they are always about the intersection of the East and the West, kind of broadly speaking, and are very sharp and very smart and, you know, quietly devastating. So those are the people I would pick because I would be over the moon to write as well as as any of them. So those those are the people I pick. I can't thank you enough. I can't thank you enough for your time, for your honesty, for your words. It's just been thank you. Honestly, a dream come true for me to get to talk to you. Oh my um, god. Well, I'm such a fan and I have to say I think there's something really special about one artist getting to talk to another. It just there's a level of understanding even though the art is different and Again, I cannot thank you enough for what you've done for contemporary fiction and specifically what you've done for my books. And I am so grateful and I'm so honored to have been here with you. No, thank you so much. Thank you. This is a real honor and I've loved every moment of this chat. So thank you so much for for joining me. Bye. I'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. Well, I certainly hope you're all feeling as enriched and alive as I am after hearing that interview. So my deepest of thanks to my new friend, Hanya, for her time and her willingness to open her life up to me and my listeners. Personally, I'm feeling that it might just be time to give a little life another read. After I work my way through Hanya's list of favorite writers, of course. Speaking of which, you've all been so kind as to comment on some of your pics on Service95's Instagram when we posted my book recommendations list last month. But I'd love for you to send me a voice note telling me about a book or author you've discovered and fallen in love with recently, especially as I look for more reading material to keep me company on the road. Send your suggestions to podcast at service95.com with your name and Instagram handle, and we may feature you on an upcoming episode. On that note, we received an overwhelming response to last week's At Your Service request from Megan The Stallion on What Makes a Hot Girl. Here are some of your hot tips. Hi, Dula. This is Mariana. I live in Atlanta, Georgia. I recently went to your Atlanta show. It was a once in a lifetime experience. Um, 
I want to say that something else that makes you a hot girl is vulnerability. I think being vulnerable and being transparent about the things that you struggle with or the things that you're going through and you know how you process them is so powerful. I mean, at least for me personally, I realized that when I started being open about you know going to therapy for my mental health and for anxiety i started to feel better and i started to feel more confident in myself so i would definitely say vulnerability makes you a hot girl i hope you have a great night bye hey dua this is anna i'm originally from spain but i am living in boston and for me like two important qualities for being a hot girl it will be honesty Everything you have to be really brave to be honest and, and it's a quality that I realize that really turns me on to seeing in other people. And also determination. Uh, for me, uh, uh, as long as you don't be rude and you don't step out on other people, you have to follow your path and, and your dreams and, and reach your goals. Uh, thank you for everything. Uh, muchos besos. Hey Dua, it's Zena from Jakarta, Indonesia. And I would like to just add a little bit to the what makes a hot girl list. I think it's to not be caught up in the game of trying to get other people's validation, especially those who do not matter to us, and just be authentically ourselves, which I think you truly embody that already. Bye! Mariana, Anna, and Zena, thank you so much for all your tips. I really feel like vulnerability, honesty, and not trying for other people's validation are definitely some hot girl traits. Thank you so much for sharing your suggestions. If you, like me, are looking for more Hanya Yanagihara content in your life, make sure you subscribe to our Service 95 newsletter today, as we featured some of her must-see travel destinations from around the globe in this week's issue alongside some incredible pieces of writing and reporting and a recipe from Hawa Hassan that I'm incredibly eager to make for myself when I have a bit of time off from tour next month. In the meantime, please keep listening and we'll see you next week with yet another very special guest. Bye. Bye.